Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City. And today I am joined by my friend, Chuck Marone. Hello. Welcome back. Hey, Abby. It's so nice to see you. I know that we put some of these videos on YouTube and in other places. I just want to point out, I got my brand new today in the mail, <laughs> my multi-studio uh, sweatshirt. So I got the I got the official merch from your employer now. Yeah, I know. That's I'm glad it arrived. It took about a month to actually get it shipped to you. We were supposed to send it around the holidays, and I'm just not very good at shipping things. So I'm glad that you finally have it. <laughs> I had it on earlier today on a meeting and someone said, is this like paid product placement? And I'm like, no, yeah. like, I love, like Gould Evans is amazing. And now that you are a uh, multi-studio, I, I love the work that you all do. And, you know, I met you because I was there working with your team and, you know, doing some really innovative stuff in Kansas City and in the Kansas City region. You guys are a big part of leading this conversation there. And so, yeah, I think this is the third year you've been doing this or the fourth, like you've been doing yeah. this a while now. I, I know. It's, I think it's been three years now, which is crazy. <laughs> it's amazing. It's great. I remember when we first set this up and I thought, wow, to have someone of your uh, caliber from an organization of that caliber here doing the show with us is just amazing. So not a product placement. Uh, you sent this to me to be kind and, uh, I'm wearing it to be kind. So thank you. Yeah. Shameless plug. And also it is, <laughs> I have the same hoodie and it is one of my favorite hoodies. So I hope you find it very comfortable. Um, it's and very comfortable. strong towns needs to get some hoodies because I happen to be a hoodie we fan. Do. So. <laughs> no doubt. Let's do it. Okay, cool. Well, so we have a kind of complicated <laughs> article today that I think is going to be really interesting to cover. This was published in the Oregonian by Goja Wozniaka, and it is entitled Northeast Portland's Coley Neighborhood Fights Displacement Climate Change with Urban Renewal, but Will It Work? So I guess a little bit of background for people who aren't <laughs> familiar with Coley. So this is a neighborhood that is basically, you know, it's northeast of Portland proper. It was annexed by the city back in 1985. It has maintained relatively low property values over the years since the city has experienced a lot of growth. It has areas that it kind of has like an agricultural vibe, even though it is this kind of, I would say, relatively dense single family environment. Um, it lacks a lot of built roads. It doesn't have 
a lot of sidewalks or curbs. I don't know if it has, you know, proper gutters and that sort of thing. There's a lot of industrial uh, uses that are on the north edge of the city, some contamination issues. There's um, several mobile home parks uh, throughout the area, as well as kind of affordable apartments that are sprinkled throughout the neighborhood. So according to this article, it's a very diverse working class population. There's a lot of residents that live below the poverty level. And in recent years, this community has established this coalition that is really trying to keep the area affordable. They've been successful so far in buying out a mobile home park so that residents could, you know, fight being displaced. They have been building affordable housing and improving some of the contamination issues in the area. And now they are about to implement this kind of big experiment with the intention of maintaining the area's current affordability. And the tool that they're planning to use um, is urban renewal. And for those of us who don't know what urban renewal is, it's really commonly known as the strategy that was implemented from you know the late 40s, 70s, which seized and demolished large swaths of urban neighborhoods in order to modernize these areas. Uh, it displaced a lot of residents. It demolished a lot of housing. It was enabled through a lot of federal funds, but implemented at this very kind of localized level. And in the context of Portland's Coley neighborhood, it is essentially this tax increment financing tool that allows the city to borrow a massive amount of money, $350 million over 30 years. And then under this plan, the area would invest in kind of programs and purchases that are intended to stabilize residents um, and businesses. So buying land for affordable housing development, and then eventually investing in quality of life improvements for the area. So it's basically a, a, a large TIF for the area that is, you know, focused on anti-displacement, freezes, for anyone who doesn't know what tax increment financing is, it basically freezes the taxes currently, the property taxes for the area, and then anything, you know, that is improved in that tax base a portion or all of it is going towards um, these, you know, anti-displacement efforts rather than going to the county and the city. Um, so it's kind of a value capture method of reinvesting in an area. So I hope I explained that correctly. Chuck, feel free to jump in if you think there's anything that we should kind of explain about this. I think that there's a lot to unpack here. I know that there are, you know, various cities and states that use TIF and these urban renewal strategies in a variety of different ways. So I don't necessarily want to associate what they're doing with the urban renewal picture that we think about from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, where we're like demolishing large swaths of land. Chuck, maybe you disagree with me. It is a little bit different definitely better intentions here, but I do have a little bit of skepticism about kind of the massive oh. scale of the investment and whether or not this is really going to work. So, okay, you, <laughs> <laughs> this is, there's a you, lot to kind of set up here because oh it gosh. is kind of complex. It, this is okay. You just ended with better intentions 
And I think that's one of the things that I want to stop and, and point out because we can look back at urban renewal and say, boy, that was evil. Boy, they went in and some really like kind of despotic sense of, of what should happen. But if you go back and read the literature at the time, um, some of it is really gross, but a lot of it is done by people who were saying, here's how we show love to these disadvantaged communities. Here's how we go and, and help people better themselves. Here's how we take care of these places. And they were sensitive to it in a different way than we are today. Back then, they were very sensitive to the idea of substandard housing. So they would look at a neighborhood and say, this neighborhood is blighted and we need to go in and address that blight and help the poor, disadvantaged, uh, marginalized people who live in this neighborhood live in something that's not blight. And so here's our, here's our plan. We'll call it urban renewal. Now today, we are very sensitive to the idea of affordability. Um, we're less sensitive to the idea of the quality of housing and, and for a whole bunch of reasons, we're very sensitive to the idea of affordability. And so now in order to achieve affordability and by the way, help with climate change and there's a whole bunch of other like ancillary things we want to do, um, we are going to go in uh, with the same tool and use it different. And so when you say that it's better intentions today, I'm, I'm, I'm going to push back gently on that because I think one of the things that we are guilty of, and I think humans are always guilty of this, but I, I think we should be aware of it in ourselves, is that we assume that we have better intentions than the people of the past because we assume that our intentions are good and that what they did because it didn't work out, they must have had nefarious intentions. And I'm going to suggest that whatever mix of good and bad intentions that they actually had at the time, we probably have those same inclinations today. Hmm. Does that, does that yeah, make sense? I, I mean, yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think you're, you're it's probably... a word of caution. Yeah. And I, I think that we should always have caution when thinking about kind of grand schemes for, I guess, trying to slow down or intervene within the market. Also, you know, understanding that displacement in a place like Portland is is a huge problem. So I think that it's great that the community has come together and they're trying to find a way of getting to this issue of displacement, you know, what I think was right about this article is that they are focusing on this idea of gentrification without displacement. Gentrification is obviously a very loaded term, a lot of different meanings and perceptions about what it is. I think what is right about this proposal is it kind of teases out what I think most people are concerned about when you hear the word gentrification, which is you know, being displaced due to taxes going up or rent becoming less affordable, um, going up at a higher rate than incomes are increasing. So that part is correct. And finding ways to build affordable housing is is a good thing to do. Um, I think it's a really challenging to do thing to do in practice. And this article doesn't exactly make it clear to me how they intend to do that. I had a hard time with this article because it was very, very long and it didn't give me a lot of like mathematical details about how this all really works. And I think it would have been helpful to see projections um, of 
but there how, aren't any. I mean, yeah, that's it's the like point. how these models work, and also they're bar. You know, the city's borrowing a lot of money, right? I mean, they're yes. they're they're betting yes. three hundred and fifty million dollars. You know, they're they're going to borrow that today, invest it, and then the as taxes go up in the area. And, and it's not clear if some people's taxes are frozen or if everybody's taxes are still going to go up, but we have a few affordable housing projects that we've invested in, or we bought out a mobile home park, but you know everybody else, your taxes are still going up. So it just really wasn't quite clear to me how all this well, really works. You. So it's hard to make a judgment on it, right? Yeah. I feel like it's it's very clear how this works. The reason why I cued in on that idea of intentions is because if we don't, if, if we are willing to like on a moral scale, elevate our intentions and, 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 and diminish the intentions of the past, I don't think we really ask hard questions about why urban renewal didn't work. And we're going to repeat those problems again and again. I, the first quote in this article that I highlighted, and when you sent me this article, I said, oh, we will now use the one ring for good. I'm a Tolkien fan. And so I can see Boromir uh, sitting there going, no, the one ring, it's a gift. It's not the tool of the devil. It's uh, Sauron. It's, it's our tool. We can use it for good. So here's the quote. We asked, and this is the coordinator of Living Cully, Maddie Norman. She says, quote, we asked... What if we could use the same tool that caused harm to instead repair that harm? What if the tool itself is neutral, but the way it's been used in the past created the problems? I, I find this to be like the most dangerous mindset imaginable because what you're doing is you're saying, I am good and have good intentions and the people of the past were bad and had bad intentions. And so the outcomes will be different. And I think that is just wrong. I think it's foolishly wrong. And let me, let me give you, you said you were looking for details. Like what's the math? How does this actually work? I'll tell you what the only real detail here is that has been worked out. And that is this, we are going to borrow the money and repay it by the increment of increase in value. So the way that you explain how TIFF works, the values are frozen. And as the neighborhood goes up in value, more taxes are paid. That added tax rate will then go to repay this debt. Okay. So we take on the massive debt all at once, and now we're obligated to repay it by making property values go up. But we're going to spend the money that we get, this huge pot of money, making sure that nobody gets displaced when the property values go up. All right. Now, let me give you an alternate way to do this same exact thing that does not involve the one ring, right? Like touching, like we can use the one ring for good. Let's say we made this whole place a TIFF and we said, all right, today the value is here and we're going to lock that in. And any value that goes up, we're going to use that to fund projects we would do to make the neighborhood better. Instead of having one big, massive pot of money, we have what amounts to like an accelerating revolving fund so that when we get money in, we could spend it in this neighborhood. There's a set aside fund. There's a block. Here's why that's not as attractive to the people setting this up. It is slower. Your projects would be smaller. Uh, you don't have a huge pot of money that can employ a bunch of bureaucrats and people to do this kind of work. You actually have to like do the work and then employ it. And then it, it is more methodical. It is more intentional. The reason that they don't want that, the reason they want the big pot of money is because 
they believe they can wield the one ring for good because they're better people than the people who tried to wield the one ring 67 years ago. And I, to, to me, that is like the number one signal that they lack the humility to actually do this in the way they're saying they're going to do it. Well, so I think the value capture proposition is what is appealing to me about this plan. It's interesting to use TIF in this way. If you were doing smaller projects that, you know, us a neighborhood could leverage these funds for, I think that would be kind of a better approach. But yeah, this is definitely a very large amount of money. It seems like it would be a lump sum or maybe large amounts throughout 30 years. That isn't clear to me either. But um, what, what I think is interesting about this idea of good intentions is that, you know, we're talking about 30 years. And so this is going to require leadership and consistency over 30 years to pay this back and to actually potentially steward this money. Yeah. So the people who are managing it today, uh, if there is not something in place to kind of keep this model true to what it was intended to be by the people who have created it, it could really go off the rails. And so I think that, you know, the article talks a little bit about kind of the unsustainability of the level of energy and attention from community leaders, something like this could take. And also that there's some level of susceptibility to the ever-changing groups of elected officials that could impact this over 30 years. I'm sure the market will change, the politics will change. So, you know, who's to say how this actually is spent and how it actually impacts the community and, and whether if it, if it does stop displacement, truly? They're not going to get $350 million over 30 years. Yeah. They're going to spend $350 million. No, they're going to spend $350 million in the near term on projects that they think are really important today, and then they're going to pay it back over 30 years. That's the – okay – Remember when I put together the the plan for Kansas City? We called it the the local reparations. I wrote a whole article about redlining and the key difference between the plan that we put together at Strong Towns for the the kind of similar neighborhoods in Kansas City, neighborhoods that were failing to thrive, were behind, uh, were disenfranchised, were uninvested in. Uh, that were whenever they did get investment, it resulted in gentrification. The two key differences between this plan and the plan that we put together is one, we emphasized local ownership. In other words, all the projects that we were doing were designed to get people in that neighborhood owning the neighborhood. So the idea of gentrification is rising land values and then property values, and then people get displaced. You've got to have rising property values to make a tax increment financing project work. Like that is the basis of it. In Portland, they want to, in a sense, use the money to kind of counteract the rising property values and subsidize people to stay in the neighborhood and, you know, build like affordable housing. And what, what, what you actually need to happen is that we need to get the people in the neighborhood to own the neighborhood so that when it gets wealthier, they get wealthier, they get more capacity, they get, you know, they share in that wealth that they're creating. The, the second part of our plan that's different from this is that our plan said 
we need to have each step in a sense reinforce the next. So it's not smart people or well-intentioned people or what have you coming in and picking out the projects that are the winners. It is the people on the ground that you're building off of who are themselves doing the projects and that creates the increment. All the city is, is the seed money. You need to get into this place. You don't have the down payment. We will help you with the down payment and then retire that debt over time with the taxes. Uh, we will front the money for you so that you can get the loan and we'll secure it. And then your increment of taxes, instead of going to the whole pot of Kansas City, will be directed towards retiring the debt that we, the city, took on to help you get started. So the relationship is not we come in and do for you with a big pot of money and then use your success theoretically to pay that pot of money back. It is we clear a guide path for you to do the things that you think need to be done. And then when you do that, we're going to help you finance it with your own success. We're not going to benefit from that until you and this neighborhood have been made whole. Well, let me read one more quote from this article that I think is like, this is, I can't remember who said this one, but it just says she asked. This is the quote, quote, how could this tool, this project they're doing, possibly have an anti-gentrification impact if it literally requires property values to go up in order for yeah. it to work? Yeah. That's where the money comes from. That's what the tax increment is. And I feel like what we have here is we have a bunch of people who don't understand how markets work, how projects work, how finance works, how home ownership works, who just see a problem and see a mechanism to get a big pot of money. And very much like the urban renewal people in the 1960s can connect those into a nice sounding flowery type of well-intentioned thing. And they're going to go out and repeat the same exact thing we did 60 years ago. Yeah, and I think that's I, I what... I think this is going to be a disaster. Well, and I hope it's not, sincerely. But th that's what I found challenging about this article because I, I think very literally, right? I want to know exactly how this works. And I felt the article was very flowery and I felt like it was trying to kind of sell this idea without giving a lot of details. And details, I think, are very important because... If you are living in this neighborhood and you say you've owned your house for 20 years, it seems like this plan actually, it's kind of betting on market forces to do what market forces are going to do, right? I mean, it's it's betting on the area to become more valuable in order to capture the, you know, increment of, of tax revenue, the increased increment. It's not trying to oppose the market because it actually does rely on the market. But I guess, you know, when you when your taxes go go up eventually, that additional money is going into this pot so that they can build an affordable housing uh, project or so they can or, pay back the debt. Yeah, so that they can pay back the debt. So, so they can pay back the debt right. on those projects that were that were built. Mm. Um, they're already done, right? Yeah, that are already done and may not actually serve you if you're a homeowner in the area and you can't afford your taxes. I mean, I maybe you just like to stay in your house and you don't want to move into the project that they just built. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, this is, this is a plan with not a lot of detail. I, I'd actually love 
to send this to Joe Minicosi of Urban 3, who you did a lot of the research for, um, you know, looking at the impact of redlining and kind of inequitable taxing dynamics. I'd love to get his thoughts on this because I think he would find this pretty fascinating. Well, yes, I, I, I think this would be one of them that we would we would have some debate, Joe and I would, over this. Let me throw this out to you. I feel like, and let me point out what I think is the good part of this, or the part that I do think is different from the 1960s urban renewal. There's a commitment here to work in small increments, at least a stated commitment. And it is jumbled up with a whole bunch of like other competing interests. Like we want to have the greenest neighborhood possible and we want to harden our place for climate change. And we want to, so that we want to add all these other like progressive, very nice, happy things on top of it. We want to layer in, but the idea is even with that to not in the night, like in the 1960s, go tear down an entire neighborhood and rebuild an entire neighborhood in a better image. The idea is to find incremental projects to do. Now, I think that that difference is a really important one that makes this better than what we were doing in the 1960s. The problem is the way they're going about funding it is not conducive to that mindset. If what needs to happen in a neighborhood is a bunch of like $500 crosswalk improvements and we need you know to do a $1,000 project over here and a $10,000 project over here and someone's trying to get started and they need 15,000 for a down payment and we're gonna amateurize that for them so their taxes, all, all these things are very small scale. I'm gonna give you a $350 million pot of money to go do small scale stuff. Do you know what happens because you are a human being is that you say, I, I, I can't process that many small things. I have this big pot of money and what winds up happening is you wind up working in bigger and bigger things over time because you just can't scale it. And if you do try to scale it down, if you do say like, we're only going to do small projects and I'm going to accept a little bit of chaos and messiness, then what happens is that you're going to waste a lot of money without like skin in the game and without feedback. Yeah. Yeah. The skin in the game issue, I think is a big one. I'd actually love to see a model that, you know, helps homeowners in the area and improve their properties and invest in their properties and maybe provide tax abatement to them. If, if we're really trying to address this issue of displacement and taxes going up, it seems like we ought to kind of reverse what's what's happening here and instead, you know, directly address people who have low income, they can't, you know, maybe they're on a fixed income, they can't afford for their taxes to go up and have some kind of tax abatement program. And that's the way it works in a lot of neighborhoods in, in my city. We There's a $5,000 investment in your home and it's very flexible for what you invest in, but um, as long as you make that investment, you can get 10 years of tax abatement. Um, you can do that every 10 years and a lot of people qualify for it. Partner that, you know, maybe match somebody and make it some kind of grant program to help them out with that investment. Now their, their wealth has gone up because their house has been improved and they're able to stabilize their taxes. So this seems like it kind of does the opposite of that. It's kind of banking on people's taxes going up so that they can pay off the debt, which is what worries me. I sincerely hope this works out for them. 
I hope it works out too. I'm deeply skeptical. In Kansas City, what we see is we see the city historically using these tools for really big projects. So the huge hotel developer comes in or the huge property developer comes in and they want a tax abatement. They want a TIF. They want their uh, infrastructure costs uh, diminished. The city's like, yeah, we'll do all that. And then we have this struggling neighborhood over here, but because there isn't one big developer to go through the process, that neighborhood doesn't get any of that kind of love or kind of, kind of stuff going on. What we suggested Kansas City should do, and really every city with struggling neighborhoods should do, is take those tools that you're willing to use for the big, huge, and then just scale it down. And you know the, the people running the programs will say, well, that's not very efficient. Like this is a $40 million project, and so I can afford to hire a bond advisor and uh, you know a financial advisor and all these other things. Yeah, you're going to have to become smarter, quicker, lighter, cheaper. You're going to have to do it to scale it down to that. But that's kind of like your transaction cost as a city to bring this neighborhood back and to mature this neighborhood. That That's what we're paying you for. Stop losing money on that big investment. Go make money on these small investments and it will all work out. What What this does is say we don't have to do that hard work. We can stay with like the big bureaucracy. We can stay with the big top-down stuff. We can stay with a big slush fund. We're just going to be a little bit smarter and more strategic than people in the past were about how we spend it. And I think anyone who has studied human psychology to any degree um, will recognize, you know, anyone who's studied business management to any degree will recognize like the folly in that approach, whether you have like the specific details of what they're going to do or not, um, that just as a mental as a mental framework, walking in the door makes no sense. And they think they they think they can wield the one ring for good. And I I think they will wind up aiding the evil Lord Sauron and his plan to uh, gentrify and stagnate large parts of Portland. Yeah, I'd almost like to see some kind of plan that does uh, decentralize the investments that come out in addition to having some kind of tax abatement program. Like, I like the idea of actually utilizing TIF to upgrade smaller sites for infrastructure so that people can actually invest in vacant lots and that sort of thing um, so that incremental development can work rather than utilizing TIF for these large projects. So it's an interesting idea. I, we'll see. We'll see how it's spent. It's really easy to, for things to go really wrong with really large amounts of money, and we learned that during urban renewal. Um, and hopefully, this group stays true to their intent and are you know truly use it in a very smart way. And we're proven totally wrong, and you know they saved the neighborhood from displacement. Well, here's a, here's a quote from the Director of Development Investment at Prosper Portland. Quote, we can't stop market forces, but we can be intentional about where public money goes. We've always been able to be intentional about where public money goes. Like that's, that's never been a limitation on us. We've always been able to be intentional about how we spend public money. There's nothing about having a $350 million fund that we can tap into now that would prompt us to be more intentional than we have been in the past. Like why, why does it take a whole bunch more money to be intentional? Why aren't we intentional already? Right. And why I, isn't the city of Portland making these investments? Well, yes. Why aren't we making these investments already? Why, why aren't we out there 
doing these things, it feels to me like what we have is people with good intentions, and I'm not doubting the intentions. I think you're right that people here have good intentions. I just don't think they're better intentions than in the past. They're just more attuned to modern sensibilities. We have you know, good intentions, have found a mechanism to acquire a lot of money, have branded that acquisition of money with all the buzzwords of the day, green, solar panels, climate change, inequity, black and brown neighborhoods, you like go through your list of, of buzzwords and now are going to use that money to go out and do quote unquote good in the, in the image that they see it. And okay, I, I'm not doubting their sincerity and I'm not doubting their, their intentions. I'm doubting their humility and I'm doubting their uh, faith in themselves, which I think is, is likely misdirected. There's a scene in The Lord of the Rings, the movies, and it's in the book as well, where they're in the, they're in the cave and uh, Frodo says to Gandalf, you know, something along the lines of, I, I wish Frodo had killed Gollum when he had a chance. And there's this back and forth about what you do with great power. You know, how do you wield great power? And that you really shouldn't want or seek out great power because when you do, you, you, you tend to, even when you have good intentions, misuse it, not be able to, to utilize it. And I think systems that start with the idea that we're going to borrow huge amounts of money to do good, and then when we do good, we'll be able to pay back the money and everyone will be better off, is to me just a backward system. Why don't we start with, we're going to go do good. And when we go do good with what we have, we will see things get better. When they do, we will have more money to continue to do more good. And so the feedback loop is, if what we think is good doesn't actually work, we're not going to have more money to continue. We're going to have to figure something else out. It's the same intentions. It's the same people. It might even be the same projects. It's just a more productive feedback loop that will actually make you accountable to the people in the neighborhood as opposed to accountable to a bond market that you now owe $350 million to. Hmm. Well, I think we'll end it on that note. That's very good, Chuck. I hope I I hope everything works out for this neighborhood. It's actually I was looking at it on Google. It it's a really cool looking area. It's got a lot it of is. like homesteading, and it's you know I, if if it if it displaces people and this plan doesn't work out, um, yeah, that's that's this really is, sad. This place has a real strong towns vibe to it. And totally. I, yeah. I got an invitation to go there. I would love to go there. I would love to see this place, chat with the people there, learn about their lives. Yeah, it's got a real Strong Towns vibe. Yeah, I'm, it does. I'm nervous for them yeah, me too. and their future. Okay, well, let's leave it there. But before we end today, it is time for the Down Zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything we have been reading, watching, listening to, anything that's been taking up our time these days. Uh, so Chuck, I'm going to pivot to you. What have you been up to? I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do qu three quick sports things. First, oh, you're back. Your team's <laughs> back in the in the uh, AFC Championship game. So congratulations! Yeah, Good yeah luck thank to you. you. <laughs> By the time this comes out, we will know if they're going back to the Super Bowl or not. So we, yeah. we will see. Yep. 
I'm cheering for you. I'm rooting for you. Thank you. Um, the second one is that your baseball team traded my baseball team a player, and it looks like your team is just unloading talent and trying to lose as many games as possible, which I'm grateful for because you're in our division <laughs> and that just helps us. Yeah. Um, but third, this summer, I, I had a, I've got two nephews who are teenagers now, and I needed some work done this summer, and I made a bet with them about the Vikings. Um, I'm a Vikings, you know, I'm from Minnesota, so I have to cheer for the Vikings, but I did not think we would be very good. And we made a bet and I lost the bet. And so tonight, as soon as we're done here, I am driving down to Eden Prairie. I'm picking up my two nephews and I'm taking them to a Timberwolves game, which was my part of the bet. Um, mm. If they lost the bet, they were each going to have to do six six hours of hard labor in my backyard <laughs> for free. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that didn't work out. I'm going to have to pay them. But, uh, you know, it's all good. I'll, I'll take them to the game and we'll have a fun time. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, my husband was actually at the game last weekend and I watched it a little bit with my sister. I'm not as into football as I think most people are, but it is exciting. We're doing really well. And I guess there's a game on Sunday this weekend. And then it's the Super Bowl. Is that correct? Um, if you win, you'll be in the Super Bowl. We'll be in the Super Bowl. I'm not a super big into football either, but there is a community vibe that kind of goes with it, right? Yeah, um, for sure. It's fun when you're it's fun when you're a winner, and you guys got cool colors too. I mean, I like your team color. Ours are purple. Like, what is Me that? Me too. Yeah, we've got good colors. I like the aesthetic for the most part. We're playing the Bengals. It looks like on Sunday. Um, yeah, you're playing ugh. the Bengals. Yeah, those are. And they went to the Super Bowl. They beat you last year. They were they're they're very good. Yeah. So we'll see. They're, Not, they're a team to I don't cheer know about for. the orange, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, not not as good of colors. So they'll probably – they probably won't win, right? I'll be eating those right. words maybe in a week. Yeah. Um, so sorry to all the Chiefs fans. <laughs> you know, the sport that I actually got kind of into was soccer when the World Cup was, was on. That last game um, – I got really into that. So I, I actually think I need to go see soccer live. I didn't realize how fun it is to watch. It's much more fast paced than football. I, I just feel like football is very slow and there's not a lot of action. It's kind of baseball is a little bit the same way. I don't know. Not, not as fun to watch as soccer. I have watched uh, two soccer matches in my life. One when I was in Europe and it was a ton of fun because I was with Europeans who really cared. Yeah, it's really and serious. once over here, which was a lot like watching chess to me, but, um, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing how much they, they run. I mean, I just, I don't know. I can't imagine yeah. some of the most fit people ever. Um, totally. But yeah, I actually didn't have a sports down zone. I was just going to share that um, I've been catching up on a lot of movies that like classic movies and movies that I didn't really get into as a kid. So this past okay, week, I watched I Jurassic. know you're going to say some classic movie. No, Jurassic yes. Park, one, two, and three. I watched all three of them. Um, yeah, I guess they're not classic movies to you, perhaps. See, this is what I was going to say. You're going to say this classic movie, and I'm going to say that came out when I was like totally an adult. Oh, yeah, Jurassic Park. What year did that come out? I mean, it had to be like in the late 90s. 
Let's see. Jurassic Park um, 1. I'm Googling it. Yeah. Jurassic Park. Yeah. 93. I, I'm, yeah. So I graduated in 91. Uh, this is not a this is not a classic movie. Let's let's not go there. But you okay? You well, watched I was born a- in ninety three, so <laughs> <laughs> not not uh, to make you right. feel bad. <laughs> okay, you can call it a classic movie. That's fine. They're good. The uh, number two is. I mean, they they get progressively worse, right? The first three. Yeah. But the first yeah. one is like iconic, right? Like it's really good. Yeah, I thought the first one was was great. The the number two and number three were um they were still entertaining. Yeah, they yeah. were they were entertaining. They were basically the same movies, um, with a little uh, bit of a different plot line. But yeah, I I thought it was fun. My dog was actually watching it and kind of into it, which I thought was kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I don't know. I'm tra- trying to watch all these movies that I just wasn't into as a kid. So I was thoroughly entertained in the cold weather this week. I still think you and I should do like an alternate podcast where we just watch movies and then comment on them from an urban design standpoint. Uh, Someday yeah. I want to do That's this. a great idea. Yeah. yeah maybe yeah. we should create that podcast. I was That's thinking great, great Stranger idea. Things would be really cool. Um, Cause when I was watching Stranger Things with my kids, I'm like, Oh, there's so much. There's so much here we could discuss because they're doing, you know, it's a movie set and it's depicted in the eighties, but then it's a town and there's parts of the town that like make sense. They're like coherent. And then there's other parts that are not, and it intersects with this like horror part. And yeah. So I still have this dream of doing that someday. I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah, I know. We've talked about it before. Yeah, I know. But now I'm really thinking about it. And I'm always noticing, like, I'm always noticing the, um, like, the neighborhood types and the settings of various different movies and whether, you know, are they in a streetcar suburb with bungalows or are they in, like, a like a newer suburb or 1980s suburb? I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot that you could talk about in some of these different movies and TV shows. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, put it, think maybe about we'll it. Maybe put, put a pin in that. Put a pin yeah. in that one. Somebody might steal it now. Okay, let's end it there. Uh, d- don't put out any any ideas before we develop them. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chad. Take care, Abby. Bye.